Hello, welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the, the Network for Public Health Law, and Change Lab Solutions. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. For more information on the report, please check out www.covid19policyplaybook Org, and look for our upcoming new report, Volume 2, that will be released in late March. Please use hashtag COVID Law Briefing for any questions or comments in response to today's briefing. I'm Sarah DeGia, CEO of ChangeLab Solutions, and joining me today are Courtney Anderson, Associate Professor of Law at Georgia State University College of Law, and Senior Staff Attorney at ChangeLab Solutions, Greg Miao. Today's session is titled, A Pandemic Meets a Housing Crisis. Courtney, I'd like to start with you you as one of the authors on our, in our especially on our housing chapter can you share some of the issues that you saw at the start of the pandemic and some of your initial recommendations and a little bit about what you've learned since that chapter was released in August sure thank you so much for having me um, I think at the start of the pandemic one of the things that really stood out to me and a lot of people who are working in this space and um, trying to assist some of the people who are affected by this pandemic are that a lot of these housing inequities and inequalities, existed prior to the pandemic. And so all the pandemic did was really magnify them and really highlight the disparities with respect to housing, income, employment, and how all of these things are interrelated in this health crisis that we have. So there's been an assur a shortage of affordable housing pretty much always. And so that's highlighted when people are losing their jobs and people are out of work and people have reduced hours. There's been substandard housing forever as well. And so without the incentive for the land landlords to, you know, renovate the housing because people aren't able to pay their rent because they're not working. We see these health issues from allergens, mold, lead paint, et cetera, really exacerbated in an already time of crisis. And for evictions, there's always been disparities with respect to who's evicted from their homes along racial lines, along socioeconomic lines. And we see these same people are more affected by the pandemic. So the evictions for these people of color, for other people who are struggling financially are really multiplied despite the eviction moratorium, because the eviction moratorium is so fragmented, it's difficult for every jurisdiction to interpret the order and then follow it in a cohesive way. And furthermore, there's not any guaranteed legal counsel for civil actions. So tenants having to navigate this system without the benefit of an attorney really is in favor of, um, you know, landlords who are more powerful than them. So all of this is exacerbated in the pandemic, these existing conditions. And really what we saw initially in the pandemic in addition to these conditions being exacerbated are solutions that were put forth on a really short-term basis. So the solutions really responded to an immediate need to sort of like put a band-aid on the solution rather than addressing these long-standing inequities that existed prior to the pandemic. So as far as initial recommendations, we really wanted to understand what can be done at the local, state, and federal level. So where the federal level failed to provide adequate funding, what can the local and state government do? What can we do for rental assistance, for mortgage assistance? What can we do for the um, uh, eviction moratoriums to make sure people
people stay in their homes so people aren't having evictions filed on them. And then, you know, upon the kind of when we return to our new normal and people are working again, is it fair to have all of a sudden eight months of rent due in one day? And also with respect to kids having to stay at home, parents having to work from home, what about utility bills and people being able to have electricity, broadband, internet, et cetera? So we really wanted to see more long-term solutions that are responsive to the pandemic in a holistic way through housing. Thank you, Courtney. Um, Greg, you've been working with housing advocates and attorneys across the nation, and you kind of had to pivot, right, from the uh, trying to address these longstanding inequities to also addressing some of these urgent issues that were being raised that Courtney talked about as well. Can you share what you've been seeing in regards to these interventions and specifically talk about what's working and really what isn't working? Sure. Thank you, Sarah. And yeah, so as you mentioned, we've been working on a number of these issues prior to the pandemic. And really what we've seen has been a, a, the fast pivot, I think, as Courtney was uh, mentioning, to the the emergency response, right? What is the thing that will put the pause, hit the pause button um, on the initial crisis and give us a little bit more time to respond? And so we did have a lot of action, especially at the onset of the pandemic around local eviction moratoria, supplementing the federal moratoriums or uh, state level moratoriums. Um, but we're seeing, starting to see a real divergence there uh, at this point with some states starting to lift their protections, as well as, you know, a lot of the challenges that um, localities have been facing in terms of trying to navigate the gaps in uh, the federal moratorium, right? So that there's a lot of different aspects of evictions that have been stopped. And then there's a lot of different aspects of evictions and the eviction process that haven't been stopped. Uh, and so we're continuing to see uh, cities try to grapple with that. Uh, and I think as we've been moving on and people have been starting to see the um, longer term economic outfall of the pandemic, we really are starting to shift from some of those really emergency um, tenant protection policies to uh, some of the policies that will actually be able to address tenant protections in a longer term and structural manner. So uh, we're increasingly working with communities on, um, as the federal money is getting out for emergency rental assistance, trying to set up programs that aren't just going to be funneling that money through, but really creating the infrastructure so that they can continue to have a stable emergency rental assistance program that will provide that sort of interim tenant aid on an ongoing basis in the future. Uh, same thing with our uh, sort of a big influx of uh, momentum around right to counsel. Um, and we want to make sure that, uh, you know, what we're seeing here is that with all the eviction pressures, we're getting a lot more data in around the scope of the eviction problem. Uh, there's lots of great groups out there like Eviction Lab and others, uh, the eviction mapping project that are tracking that. Um, and we're trying to, and we're seeing a lot of more movement at the local level to try to stand these programs up, sometimes utilizing uh, federal stimulus dollars, but almost always starting to direct you know, municipal funding to it. Because uh, I think that there's starting to be this realization um, that this is going to be a long-term, you know, while these existed beforehand, maybe our, we have a greater appreciation for the need and the pressure to address it now, and that the cost associated with the, the, the upcoming sort of uh, onslaught of uh, eviction filings is going to be really large. And so we need to get ahead of that as much as possible. And providing attorneys to people in the eviction process is going to be a much cheaper and better solution for everyone involved, um, because it's going to give tenants more time to move out if they do have to. It's going to keep more tenants in their housing. Uh, you know, the attorneys are going to be able to help um, negotiate repayment periods. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, there's a lot of momentum right now uh, around those. So that's really where we've shifted our work. Um, you know, we came originally doing a lot of our, our um, 
housing quality work and you know lead poisoning prevention and asthma triggers. And you know, I think this is I just wanted to make a mention that we see this as all related, right? That um affordable housing is a uh, trigger and and contributes to housing quality issues, which contribute to housing stability issues. And there's a real cycle here. And so this is not any call for um you know redirecting existing resources away from existing programs. This is definitely an all in all for both and type of situation for all of those types of policies. That's great. I mean, I think you set it up really nicely too, because I, I'd like for us to shift and talk a little bit about the stimulus bill that's in front of Congress, because I think some of those messages have, you know, hopefully trickled up. The new administration is looking at this issue. Courtney, can you talk a little bit about some of the protections and the dollars that are in the new stimulus bill and maybe even some additional ways that we're trying to help both homeowners and renters in this through this new protection? Yeah. Um, I think this new stimulus bill is really helpful with respect to understanding the ongoing need for just cash assistance for people. So to Greg's point, you know, a lot of the work, when he said a lot of the work he's been doing has been kind of helping people through this process. That's a need we really saw because a lot of um, funds expired with the first um, stimulus bill. And so because there was like a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of inefficiencies, there wasn't a way to kind of use this money efficiently. So I think that's something that's been recognized with respect to extending the time period within which funds can be used, but certainly an extra, you know, $25 billion for tenant-based rental assistance is going to be helpful. And a lot of other things in this new stimulus bill include protecting these um, current programs that we have with respect to Section 8 housing choice voucher programs, making sure that the contracts are renewed and that we're trying to extend that. And that's really important to protect our supply of affordable housing. Although it's not adequate to meet all of the need for affordable housing, we certainly don't want to lose any affordable housing in this process. Um, other things are funds for rental assistance. And also some of the Section 8 rental assistance can be used for kind of on a broader scale for choice neighborhood vouchers, for family unification programs, and for general tenant protection assistance. And so, you know, the people who are experiencing homelessness, of course, experienced a lot of health issues during this pandemic with stay-at-home orders when they weren't able to comply and difficulties, you know, washing hands and with basic sanitary measures. So, you know, providing funds so that states and localities can address the management of public housing. There's about an extra $8 billion proposed for that. So that's something that will also be helpful. And so under the Healthy Homes Initiative, they can also monitor some of these homes, as I mentioned, that were substandard for, you know, any type of allergens or carbon monoxide, those types of things to make sure that it's um, just up to health standards. And then there are also funds to be awarded for choice neighborhood initiatives. And these are just competitive grants for rehabbing and renovating and um, really focusing on a neighborhood level, what type of funds will be provided. So really just focusing on, um, you know, additional funds for rental assistance. That's really kind of the main um, housing proposal within this. And every state is going to receive at least 200 million. And one issue that we sort of have our eye on is just understanding who's able to receive these funds. Because of course, although that's, you know, a good amount of money, it's, it's less than what everyone needs for a long period of time. So, you know, right now it's households with incomes below 80% of the area median income. And so you can, just depending on when you might have lost your job, you can still be above that range and still be in need. So it just can be a little bit difficult to still reach everyone with that amount. Um, but that rental assistance will be helpful. As we're, I mean, this is, again, you, you both had mentioned this was a problem before the pandemic, and it's going to continue to be a challenge for us to address after the pandemic. And, and again, even just much more exacerbated 
motivated by it. I'm curious, as you've been watching the housing market, as you've been looking at or just talking to other folks and studying this issue, are you seeing some trends as a result of the pandemic that you think will have lasting effects on the housing crisis? Um, And of those trends, are there some opportunities to address affordability, quality, and some of these ongoing inequities? Um, What maybe are some of those opportunities? And then again, what are some of the lasting challenges that you see that that we need to be thinking about in the long term? And that's to both. I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on that. Well, I can start with one trend that is um, encouraging, I think, are some of the um, cities and on a, you know, some support at a federal level with kind of private organizations for support for universal basic income. Um, and I think just kind of applying that in the housing context, as I mentioned before, there is a lot of red tape and inefficiencies with not giving people cash directly. So it was like, you know, the local agency has to dole it out through this process. So that's also expensive because we're adding a layer of administration, but then timing wise, people aren't getting money directly when they need it. So I'm optimistic that hopefully um, we'll see the benefit of giving cash assistance to low-income renters, low-income landlords, people who really need money directly, and that, that that's been beneficial to make de- decisions quickly. So that's something that I hope to see in the future. And I think that this pandemic has told us that you know giving direct cash assistance is the most efficient and most helpful way to provide assistance. Um, and I think people experiencing homelessness, I think, you know, kind of ramping up long-term solutions, permanent supportive housing, and dealing with the underlying issues of homelessness has really been a focus. I think with people staying at home, um, that community has become even more pronounced. So I feel like there's more attention to some of the underlying needs of homelessness. And I'm hopeful that some of the emergency solution grants and other funds can go towards addressing some of the underlying mental health, substance abuse, employment issues that result in this cycle of homelessness. Yeah. And I just hop on to what Courtney's uh, mentioned. And I think um, in addition to, I think there being a, a, a trend towards the uh, understanding of how beneficial it is to get cash into people's hands that pairs well with, I think, a greater understanding at the local level when we're talking about the policy dynamics and the the eligibility criteria that have often been tied to uh, restricted federal funding, that there's a real need to loosen it and that there's real benefits from uh, making it so that more people are eligible to uh, access that money and to get that money out faster. And so I think um, I just wanted to bring in sort of that uh, that element and also to add that I think what we're seeing at the local level when we talk and we have these conversations about them and they're trying to develop these eligibility criteria is that balance between getting the money out as fast as possible, but also doing so in an equitable manner. So I think there's a, a general benefit in having it be a cash um, supplement because that that doesn't have, uh, you know, that's going to benefit people earning the the least the most. Uh, so there's a definite equity, you know, forward aspect there. Uh, but I think they're also thinking about how do we target it and how do we get that money into the neighborhoods that have been most impacted by, um, by the pandemic. Uh, and so I do think that there's a lot of really good conversation and I think a lot of experimentation going on at the local level as people are really trying to push the bounds on the criteria that they're utilizing uh, for how they're prioritizing the the funding that they're receiving. It's really helpful. I I think to Courtney, your point earlier about um, this is all interconnected, right? Income is connected to your opportunities for jobs, to race, you know, the legacy of racism. And it it feels like policymakers are really starting, some of them are really starting to understand the interconnection of these different issues and how we need to have a comprehensive package that's really trying to address all of these issues because they really do flow from each other. And also there's an effort to try to streamline processes um, so that it isn't as complicated for folks. I know we probably have a lot to work
work on there. But um, but just hearing both of your comments, it really sounds like there's much more awareness and understanding about um, getting that those resources into people's pockets. Um, any final comments or questions as you move into this work or to the next phase of recovery? Any hopes that you have as we as we try to address these issues? Um, I think that the innovation, some of the innovation and the use of funds at the local level and the state level have been really encouraging. Um, so just different solutions for, you know, moving people experiencing homelessness to other venues and using, you know, motels, hotels, and kind of using funds for more permanent supportive housing have been helpful. So I hope we can continue on that path. And then I would say just really trying to focus on increasing our supply of affordable housing is extremely important. So um, that's just something that's been an issue for a very long time. And I think, you know, finally, it's affecting people who just aren't at the very lowest continuum of the income bracket. So I hope there's kind of more coalition around that. Greg, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think what I'm most hopeful for is that um, we have had these federal stimulus bills, and I think it's really given localities and states the opportunity to pilot and innovate. And I think critically, they're developing the infrastructure to operate these programs. And that is often a a real challenge. It's not just passing the policy, but it's standing up the program. It's hiring the folks that are going to go out and do the inspections or that are going to, you know, bring people into the program. And so I think there's a lot of critical skill sets um, and infrastructure that's being built right now. And I'm really hopeful that we can work with localities to try to figure out um, sustainable ways to continue to provide those services because I do think that these are all essential services. We always know that people will be, you know, there will be a percentage of the population that will be experiencing housing instability. Uh, there's going to be a portion of the population that's going to be having um, housing discrimination challenges that are going to be trying to access affordable housing. So none of these programs are going to, should go away and we should try to figure out a way to make sure that they're not only we're, we're taking advantage of the infrastructure that's being built, but that we're also at the local level, especially trying to link all of those services together and, and really bring it into a comprehensive local um, policy understanding around housing. Uh, I think for too long, these things have been really fragmented and you would have affordable housing, one one wing of government and you know homelessness prevention in another. They're the, they're, they're the same. They need to be thought of as closely linked and they have to be, you know, the strategies have to be um, developed and pursued that way. Thank you both so much for your time today and for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and expertise. Um, We will continue to move these efforts forward and look forward to your contributions. Thanks to all of you listening here today. We'll be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday at noon Eastern time. Just go to at PHLawWatch or search hashtag COVID Law Briefing. Recordings are available on Public Health Law Watch website and the shows are archived at The Week in Health Law Podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID Law Policy Briefings are produced by Faith Kalik and Liz Voyles, and we'll see you next time. Please stay safe.